and welcome back to the Rhizocast this week. Thank you for tuning in, and we're excited to be sitting with you. I'm Sue Hunt, your host, and you can find my work at suehunt.com. You can tune in to the collaborative community of artists, Rhizo Magazine, at rhizomagazine.com. We're a community that shares inspiring work, realizations, writing, poetry, practices around art, environmental justice perspectives, astrology, spirituality, movement, recipes, all things rhizomorphic in the human consciousness. Sharing beauty as well as the deep process of being human without labels and beyond binaries. Okay, let's get right into this week's episode. Be sure to check out Rizo at rizomagazine.com. Here we go. And welcome back to the Rizocast this week. I am elated to be sitting with Stacy Sims. We've been friends for a while now, and I've always been a big supporter and interested in the work that she does. She is a mind-body educator and social practice artist, and we'll get into all the things that that means. Hey, Stacey, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm excited to be talking to you. Yeah, me too. I was just sort of reminiscing a little bit, and you have one son, right? Yes, who lives out in your part of the world. Yeah, that's what I thought. In Santa Fe or in Taos? In Santa Fe. Okay, cool. Yeah, very cool. Yes. Shout out to Nick Sharp. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what's new in your world, what's percolating personally and what you're working on. Mm, mm, Those are big, uh, big invitations. Thank you. So uh, to set the stage for the the work I do, which in large part has to do with some of our intersections. I run a nonprofit that um, lives under the name The Well, uh, and thewell.world is its kind of web domain. And it's a combination of programs, practices, and um, ways to connect at the intersection of arts and wellness. And I'll talk a little bit more about some of those programs probably later, but it's it's just been so wonderful to, wonderful and challenging in a way, but mainly wonderful to figure out probably a lot like you, how you grow an ecosystem that is um, generative, that um, provides healing wellness content in a way that is moving beyond the checklist or beyond the, I don't know, the transactional and into really supporting deep change for humans one step at a time in schools and in other places. So really excited about our growth and our work there. Mm -hmm. Personally, I'm, um, Oh, what do I say? Um, um, uh, Constantly recalibrating um, uh, against the the truly concerning moment in time Mm -hmm. we're having. Um, 
and trying not to spin out and then and return to the practices and things I love and the things I can control, which include um, deep friendships, um, writing time on my own uh, to work on some personal projects and being a good friend and family member. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great point that you just made about the writing time on your own or creative time on your own really lets you be in a different frequency than what we're always getting bombarded with all the time. You know, it really sort of jogs that inner rejuvenation of like, oh my God, why don't, why am I not doing this more as an actual sort of social protest to what's going on? Yeah. And that, um, you know, autonomy and agency are such tremendously important words right now. And I feel I'm 61 now and looking back over my life, I can see that as a white woman that I've had so much privilege um, with my autonomy and agency and squandered a lot of it um, mm -hmm. for a lot of different reasons. So it's how do we, you know, when we have the privilege of being able to manage our own time and do the things that we want to do versus things that someone is telling us to do, that's how do you, how do you be hyper responsible, responsible with that privilege, as well as how, um, I think to your point, you know, I think both of us have a deep interest in creating, um, uh, let's see, entry points for others mm -hmm. uh, to, to create their own sustainable practice. Um, and how do we recharge in order to be able to hold space for others to find their own way? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Great point and super well said of what's sort of the behind the scenes that it takes with, yes, privilege and access to time management and working for yourself. These are some of the topics I wanted to bring up later in the podcast, but we'll just go ahead and go there now, which I love, which is like, what are some of the trials and tribulations of running a service-based business that really does focus on um, social change. You know, I love the terminology in your bio that is, you know, social practice artist. I think there's a lot of intersecting moments there that really do have a lot of capacity to create change. I think it's just a brilliant way to sort of sum up what you do and we'll, you know, nail down some of the programs a little bit later, but what are some of the trials and tribulations of just the intensity of, um, trying to bring a totally different worldview into many different environments. Yeah, we, um, you know, we, uh, we're a small but mighty team and we work with lots of wonderful collaborators uh, and we, we have many, many conversations about trying to understand first and foremost, what is, what is the work? Um, the, and some of it has to do with walking the talk, I guess, so that, like, let's say we do a lot of work with schools. Um, one of our programs that you essentially were at the beginning of, um, Susan, Mindful Music Moments, which combines mindfulness 
mm-hmm. and music um, daily in schools, often delivered over the announcements. You know, you and I started together basically as an embedded volunteer um, pilot program for refugee children who'd lost education time doing mindfulness and social emotional things. Mm-hmm. And that led to an understanding that, oh my gosh, there's an announcement. What if we could have something every day that is an experience for students and kids and administrators to find their breath, imagine, um, center to uh, a soundtrack and prompts. So that's mindful music. Mm-hmm. So let's say as, a, you know, even though we're a nonprofit, you have a business model or a logic model. So if our desire is to reach, you know, we're now over 100,000 students that we oh, reach. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. That's it's crazy. a national yeah. program partnering with orchestras around the country. And it's really beautiful. So, I mean, and it's, it, it is truly making a difference. But if the way there, if growth means that those of us who do this work are um, not feeling nourished, uh, if we are um, sitting behind the scenes, um, making sort of enemies of our quote unquote clients, um, what, what can happen in this wellness business or really any business is you know, the minute you start saying anything like, well, they don't understand or um, othering (laughs) the very busy, stressed out humans, then we're really not doing the work. Mm -hmm. So um, just really beginning to, I would say time sculpt, like um, really mastering not just looking at the day at a glance or the week at a glance and tasks, but really trying to create a container is which it was what we think about our nonprofit entity that nourishes many and that the ways that you nourish and are in the world directly impacts growth. So we are starting to work at that intersection of being specific making plans, setting goals, and then constantly just making sure that we're actually being kind, taking time to breathe, having time for play. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, so that's like one big chunk of it. I think the other big chunk, and I know we share interest in this area is that A few years ago, we took ourselves, we took the business and we took our personages off Facebook. Um, You know, there's just so much evidence that the social media structure um, is uh, as dark as it gets um, in terms of just driving us all back to the base of the brainstem and making us the products, you know, this whole idea that if you're not paying for it, you are the product. Mm -hmm. And especially how it is a constant dysregulator of humans. Um, We're still on Instagram, but then what that means is you really have to figure out your communication strategy uh, in a, in a very, um, 
intentional way. Uh, so that's another piece of it. How do we how do we grow? How do we communicate um, and not just be? I think of it's like I think of the content mill, and it's almost like throwing, you know, logs in a wood chipper. Like, how do we not just get into the mill and truly connect? So, so those are some of the things that we're thinking about in terms of growing a a truly mindful, equitable nonprofit. Yeah. Okay. So much to tap into there. <laughs> I know. I know. Where do we even start? <laughs> okay. First, I'm going to hold a couple of questions in the ethers and just kind of pull them down. But first is the othering piece, which I think is tremendous. And that's definitely a personal practice of mine. And I love hearing you bring it into your team into larger scopes is whenever I hear myself othering in my meta dialogue, like they don't get it or the rest of the world sucks or, oh my gosh, they're just so far behind or what is going on here? The whole world is just nuts. You know, <laughs> whenever there's that little bit of separation, it's definitely an indicator that I'm not really paying attention to the complex problem and the unique individual assets I might have to be a small solution in that complex problem. And, or maybe I don't have anything to fix the problem. Maybe it's just not bitching about the problem and observing the problem. <laughs> right. So I think that that's such a organic way to actually be a part of a community and a complex solution. Um, and then second is, you know, obviously you have to be nourished to do that. So is there any particular ways with your team that you check in to see if they're okay and they're not just sort of, you know, lying through their teeth? Because it is easy to walk into that school or many schools now that you're in and just be happy in that moment. But then other parts of your life might be sort of falling through the cracks because it's it's pretty hard to be in a bad mood around a third grader who's helping you meditate. <laughs> exactly. It's really, really true. Then that's, and, you know, sometimes when you get into creating you know, like our program, we don't get to have as much of that um, true interface, which regulates everyone, you know, especially with ah, your, good point. With, yeah. you know, so a lot of it's sort of behind the scene and creating these structures. So a couple of things we put into place, um, one of which we've, it's a, it's an internal practice that we've made um, external so we start our week every Monday morning. We, we call it a strategic meditation practice. Um, and it's, uh, if you come to the well.world and you come to programs and events, anyone can join. And every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern time, we come together on Zoom and we, someone brings a reading um, from, a book, a poem, something that feels in inspirational and to the moment. And then we meditate for 15 minutes, just in silence, sometimes guided into the meditation it, that relate, if it relates to the content, uh, sometimes just taking our own 15 minutes how we want it. Then we do a five minute writing capture. So we capture whatever came up in our meditation or inspired us from the reading. 
and then we do a series of prompts, which we, the first prompt is what do you need to nourish yourself this week? Who needs nourishment in your life? And then what needs nourishment? Mm, so it's, um, it's just a great practice to be in community, um, s- listen to humans over time, um, express their own needs. And, and then, you know, having those regular check-ins, even if some, even if it's just hearing yourself, like if I say every week, I need more writing time and I don't take the writing time, then that's on me. Hmm. Um, and point. <laughs> yeah. And the, um, in terms of what we realized is that our team here, we're, we love work. We like work. We like to-do lists. We like checklists. But when we start our Monday from the checklist without starting at that really human level of, you know, as you're saying, like, how are you doing? You know, what do you need to tend to your own needs this week? You know, who, who in your world needs nourishment and then what those, those things can be, you know, a project we're working on, or they might be something personal. And I think that um, as the founder director of the organization, it's important for me to always invite those aspects, you know, our, our full self is always in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, during the pandemic, when we were, you know, quickly, quickly pivoting our work to not be able to ever be, you know, in connection with humans, we realized that we were just spending a ridiculous amount of time on Zoom and telephone, you know, on this yeah. media. Mm-hmm. So we added in a, what one of our colleagues called study hall. So Wednesday mornings, we um, kind of gave permit permission, such a weird world, but weird were word, but we essentially decided that Wednesday mornings from nine to 11 was an invitation for anybody on the team to work on their own personal work. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah, because I feel like, at least for me, mornings are really potent. You know, it's harder for me at 3 p.m. or 6 p.m. to jump into a personal creative project. So just knowing that that was, you know, essentially a a placeholder. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's beautiful, too, to also sort of come full circle to the beginning of the podcast about autonomy. I mean, I think that reclaiming of the morning space, one, extremely meditative and Zen, but two, it sets up really the neural pathways for the rest of the day. So the fact that you're building that in for people that work with you, you know, more autonomy, more happiness, more well-being, like less imprint, if that makes sense, from just the stress of opening your email the first thing on Monday morning, sort of setting the tone for the whole week. Yeah, absolutely. And just... Just remembering that, you know, you and I, you know, we do a lot of work on self-regulating, you know, which is its own whole set of tools and time practices. But the the joy of co-regulating, meaning being in relationship, looking people in the eyes, laughing, seeing one another's humanity, 
just last week, we were all, you know, our team is growing. So we were sitting around our big, we now have a space, we work together and we were sitting around our big work table. And I realized that pretty quickly, this new team that came together, we all had our heads down and we were click, click, clicking away. So we just took a break, which was just, we talked about uh, a summer store, like a time in the summer that was really memorable, like a childhood summer memory. And on occasion, we'll get up and we'll go play apples to apples or just the, the, the difference a break can make. And I want to do a segue to something that I know <laughs> you have so much more experience with than I do, which is being in nature as the mother of all regulators um, in April at the invitation of these, oh, you might know um, Taylor who spends time in Taos and this mm -hmm. other awesome friend of mine, Amy Tuttle did a sort of a, a, a vision quest for um, kind of experience in this really amazing area in the high desert in Texas on this protected land. Wow. So there was three guides and three guests. Um, I was one of the guests. So it was 10 days camping council, um, which is just uh, in my lay person's view of council. It's a, just a gorgeous practice of being mirrored mm -hmm. um, and a lot of beautiful questions. Um, so it was th three days of preparation council. It was three days of solo cowboy camping, water fasting, and then three days of integration and more council. And then a final day of um, working on the land and doing some service work to give back. So I had never, I mean, I'm not really a camper. I grew up on the land as a kid, but really have not immersed myself that way. Mm -hmm. Oh, also it was, you know, there was no, um, no cell phone, no media. When you went yeah, out to your solo screen. <laughs> yeah. But also no books, no, no input. Mm -hmm. on the solo. So it was, I just was, um, it's one of those experiences that is so important to understand what slow time, what earth time feels like. Mm -hmm. And I think that once you get to have these experiences, these um, cellular deep experiences that it's a sensation that I now understand and can imprint so I can return to it. Mm, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Two amazing pieces there. I think that the co-regulation piece is so valuable, you know, either if you're co-regulating with the environment or with the people mm -hmm. around you. Um, definitely something I started to explore sort of later in my meditative journey, especially, you know, being partnered of how to actually co-regulate beneficially <laughs> is a whole nother skill set than just co-regulating unconsciously. 
And that's awesome that you're putting that into the workplace. And just, I loved how you were like apples to apples, right? Something that just gets you into your childhood play space, even for 10 minutes can dramatically change, you know, which I just love, you know, like permission in the workspace to do that. And then um, co-regulating with earth is, you know, it's one of the reasons I was like, I got to get out of this, the city, you know, it's just not working for me anymore. But I love hearing that you were able to have that deep immersive experience and just like simple things, you know, like I stopped taking my phone on walks with my dog, things like that mm. every day. So mm. it's just, and I'm writing in my head almost the whole time, which I was not doing right. So attached to the screen and the visuals and all that kind of stuff. So it's awesome to sort of see less input creates more creative output in that co-regulation process because we're where we're supposed to be, which is, you know, slow time with the earth, with the seasons, with the elements, with the bees buzzing, right? Like there, that's honestly a little more meditative for me than it used to be sitting on my Zazen cushion in New York City. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's... um in that slow time, no matter how you cultivate it, it, um, it gets tricky because the words always start to sound sort of not full enough. Mm -hmm. But it is just that, you know, words like oneness and flow and presence. Um, it, it's really what the poets do so, so beautifully well is just the every second is an opportunity for both the micro and the macro beauty of the world to show up. Mm, that's a great description of poetry. And I definitely want to ask about um, poetry, mindful moments, but first, before we touch that, I want to talk just a little bit about reducing time on social media or totally mm. stepping away from one or many of the platforms I've had a lot of people behind the scenes send me emails like, well, what are you doing now? You know, or how are you doing it? And I haven't really brought it up in public yet. So maybe we just riff on it a little bit for mm, a couple mm -hmm. minutes. Yeah. So the decision to get off Facebook, um, well, I'll back up a little bit. I went to a really amazing neurobiology um, conference, Dan Siegel's California conference. And this was pre-COVID, so what, four years ago, maybe. And um, Tristan Harris, who was, um, is now been featured in, if you watch the Netflix documentary mm -hmm. about. Yeah, that was a great one. Yeah. He's, he's a kind of whistleblower on the, essentially the tactics used across all of Silicon Valley to get our attention and listening to him talk about it. It was like one of those things where you everything as someone who was, you know, I have an addictive personality. I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, I loved social media. I was, you know, on Facebook all the time. And when he started discussing what was happening on a somatic level mm -hmm. and that, you know, what aspect of the brain and all, all the stuff that, you know, we care a lot about, it made so much sense. And it made also so much sense that 
a lot of working with young people, the dysregulation we're seeing, you know, with young people, which is off the charts and really frightening. Yeah. Has in some some ways to do with the the chaos of the world we live in. But you know, let's just think about if I'm, and I would have been this young mother, if I'm a young mother and I have a baby uh, or a toddler, every time I'm on my phone, I'm not, and even before we put baby or toddler on phone, what I'm not doing is spending all that time looking in the eyes of going goo goo gaga, making faces, at that child. And if I hold the child to my, to my heart, Mm. um, while looking at my tablet or my phone, I'm, I'm revved up. I'm probably, my breath is probably, you know, we can't discern somatically anticipation from fear. Mm, so I think you just beautifully described the initial karmic imprint of our co-regulating abilities. Nailed yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, the, the essentially we're, you know, at that zero to five year old time period is when we are blueprinting our understanding of what it means to be safe. Mm-hmm. Um, in the world based on the ability of our primary caregiver to mirror um, their really internal state and to help us regulate our internal state. So I feel like that's a big missing piece for kids um, and adults first and foremost. And then, you know, if we're all living in the artificial world, then we just, we lose the, the skills. And we also, we just, we lose the, um, movement. You know, I think of things like a lot of the, like one of our things we talk about in one of our programs, the true body project is this whole concept of orientation, you know, in our, the, how our neck swivels and our eyes move and our spine twists. Those are all ways for us to be able to look around us and, you know, get a sense of our environment so that our, our mind and body are soothed by knowing where we are in time and space. Mm -hmm. So when I was say learning to drive, you had to like, look at a map, you had to swivel your head, you know, looking outside the car for a landmark or cross streets, you know, so we were doing a lot of that turning. Um, we would look behind us to see if we were backing up, but now none of us really have to even lift our eyes from our phone. Mm-hmm. So all of those little, um, you know, like the multifidi in the spine and all those proprioceptors are basically going like WTF. Like we do not know what's behind us even guys. Mm -hmm. So there's just so much to, I mean, there's so, you know, there's so many great things that technology can do, but I also feel like if we just keep pretending like technology and especially that social interface is not changing us dramatically as a species, Mm -hmm. then I feel like, I mean, I, I'm not really kidding when I say this, but 
I sort of feel like if we all say, well, it's just part of our world now, there's really nothing we can do. It's kind of like saying, well, we all just do crack now. I mean, there's really <laughs> nothing we can do. Yeah, no, I totally uh, get it. So, so yeah. So anyway, long way of getting to the decision to get off Facebook. And it's one of those things where you, it's like with me, like finally quitting drinking, like you think about it forever, you perseverate, you decide maybe mm, it's a terrible mm-hmm. idea, but then when you do it, I do not miss it at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to poke fun at anybody's beloved old suburban mall, but in my mind, it's like never having to go back to some depressed urban mall with stores that are barely surviving yeah, and people yeah. being to each other. I totally feel that. I often use that synonym that it's just turned into a shopping mall. Yeah. And it's, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, um, but like sort of what do we do instead? I mean, in terms of business and personal, we still do Instagram, but we're also like, we do not feel as though we lost any business by not having a Facebook presence. Mm-hmm. Um, we feel as though we can be more intentional about who we communicate with and how we communicate. Um, so yeah, that's awesome. Those are some of the things that helped us with our decision. Um, mm-hmm. And I know, are you, you're figuring out how to get off all social media? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I was never on like TikTok or Snapchat or, you know, right. regardless of the pressure to be on those. And then there's so many more now, Signal, Voxer, I mean, you name it which are more like communicating apps, but I'm already like, wait, I have email. So, you know, a lot of like pressure to be in those spaces too. Um, I'm not on Facebook anymore. Um, Neither is Live Lightly or any of sort of the other business ventures. And I'm sort of in and out of Instagram, but not really for fun on Sue Hunt, if that makes sense. Sometimes I like to reshare if someone's sharing my work, but I don't post there or create content. You know, I I made a commitment to myself to stop making content or mutating my creativity through those portals. You know, you got to make a reel or you got to post in this way. You got to have this word count. You know, I really found too much of my creative energy going in that direction. And then it was siphoning energy as well as sort of tamping down the things that matter to me and, you know, even just outlets that don't get published, right? Just writing poetry every morning, right? Something like that wasn't happening because I was making that content every morning. And I was like, wow, that's just sucks. (laughs) Bottom line, it sucks. You know, it's it's not my ethos. It's not the life I want to live. And I think, you know, as a millennial, there's a lot of pressure, especially as a business owner, to be in contact with people there because that's where my generation is and that's where um, Gen Z is. Um, But I agree with you. I've actually seen business increase, stepping away from that constant availability and much more um, consciousness and how I'm communicating with people and more boundaries, believe it or not, of how I'm communicating, which makes the quality of how I'm communicating go up. Yeah. And I do think, I mean, there are people who have figured out how to um, 
leverage Instagram and other um, platforms like that to really create a like a thriving coaching business or things like that. But I I think a lot of it is this. And I just want to interject. I think it's also the projection of a facade that they're successful. Exactly. Kind of bugs me too. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it was like the smoke and mirrors part of it that Uh we, and not only are, I think a lot of folks not actually successful, but not even asking the questions at the beginning of um, brand building, which is really life building. what what would it mean to be successful, both from a qualitative feeling sense as, as well as a very practical sense? Mm, great. Point. And so how do you, you know, I've done, I created a course once that was kind of fun. It was just this idea of mindful entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And usually what's missing, you know, for a lot of us is um, just being very explicit about our needs and our, um, our goals and not kind of magical thinking, um, image building without really understanding, does the work that we do create enough to sustain us? Yes. This is like, I just had a client last week who is starting her teaching yoga wellness journey. And she's saying, you know, I don't want to be like selling this brand you know, and like basically all of your projects came to mind and a lot of things I did for Urban Zen where I was like, great, get off the screen, go work in a hospital, go work in a school, go work in an obesity clinic, try to be a mindfulness coach in an endocrinology clinic, (laughs) right? Something where you're actually in contact with people and developing the values of who you are and how you want to practice out in the world. Yeah. And then, and, you know, getting, um, feeling that agency and autonomy to be able to, you know, really craft what is it that you need, like being able to be explicit about your financial needs, your debt, your, all those things, really bringing everything into the the container and then making sure that you don't create some sort of brand or project that is, you know, it might be a beautiful idea, but can it really does it really sustain um, the things that you really need it to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great point. So I just, I want to touch on um, True Body Project because I feel like I, I'm a recovering bulimic and it's even fun, funny to say that in that way, you know, but I do see so many of those tendencies spew out in other parts of my life that I'm like, oh, gotcha. <laughs> I know those little shape shifters. Yeah, what a little trickster, you know. And I just, I, I've always felt connected to that mission. That's one of your projects that I didn't actually physically support or get involved in. So when I got the opportunity to support you in City Silence, I was like, uh, yeah. So I just sort of want to touch on just the robustness of working with that age group of teenagers and women, and how important it is to you know, call forth a relationship to um, a female teenager's body and sort of what that process was like bringing that into the world. I know you've been doing it for many years. So any insights you can share? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, So I started the True Body Project. The first pilot year was in 2005. 
and I had um, been in sober for like eight years or so by then. And my sobriety story is that um, I just, you know, by my late thirties, I was feeling anything within me that was the promise of a life and capacity had really um, been extinguished due to just drinking, 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 and then lots of medication for panic attacks. Um, so I was almost agoraphobic without um, medication just to go out and drive and go to a store. Um, mm -hmm. Just a really depressing life. And I got sober and started Pilates. Um, oh, yeah, I forgot that about piece. The same, yeah. the same week. So my recovery, um, which it felt like the 12-step room was sort of cognitive behavioral therapy, um, circle work, really um, inventorying, like really it's a great program of that just really asserts that you're, you're really responsible for yourself, you know, and, and I think depression and anxiety and addiction can create a kind of narcissism um, mm -hmm. in terms of feeling like in order to not deal with the shame of whatever's happening, you know, we often make as though that we're not the problem, someone else is the problem. Yeah. So it's really learning how to be accountable. And then, you know, then I took a pretty sedentary, anxiety-ridden body and started to move and breathe and, and kind of re- reordinate, re-coordinate um, my breath, my body in movement and ultimately became, moved back to Cincinnati from Cleveland, opened a Pilates studio. I had also then by that time um, about finished a novel and um, something that I'd always wanted to do, but as a dysregulated alcoholic person, you're not likely to do the things that you think you're going to do. Mm -hmm. So I have these pieces coming together. I'm, you know, which I ultimately published my novel Swimming Naked with Viking, which was a huge deal. And I started this Pilates studio system in Cincinnati. And so partially getting sober introduced me to the land of other people, like just being not so mm, self-absorbed, but just really prepped. I had the capacity to be present and a good observer of others. So working in the movement space, I started to really be able to intuitively correlate kind of movement deficits or um, with just movement realities with emotion. Mm -hmm. So then I started also because I'm now in the community, I'm a writer, I'm spending time with young people and really starting to hear about how despite feminism and the marching on of time is that, and this is 2005, so really before cell phones and you know social media platforms, is that it was getting harder and harder for young women to feel um, that kind of agency, autonomy and ease in their own bodies. And so I felt like what was missing is a, a kind of rite of passage experience. Um, we often talk about bodies or 
well-being, but we don't kind of engage the body in in the conversation. Mm-hmm. So the True Body Project was born. It was started out as a six-week intensive program for teen girls um, who came to almost like a day camp where it was um, at a YMCA, so every day included some sort of movement or meditation. And it might be yoga, it might be Pilates, it might be boxing, it might be swimming. We looked at, uh, we went to the museum to look at the how the female body has been um, portrayed in art over the years. We looked at um, how wow, that's super cool. portrays women. And then we did lots and lots of writing, writing prompts, created a literary journal and a documentary film and continued to do that work and continue today to do that work, um, which is in the vernacular now of things that you hear more widely, it's this trauma-informed social emotional learning identity work, which is now available. We have curriculum for, you know, all the way down to kindergarten, you could really do some version of it. Um, Up to all ages of folks, we go annually, hopefully back again this year to Cambodia after missing that for a few years to do cross-cultural leadership training and um, cross-cultural sensitivity of working with nonprofits and NGOs in Cambodia um, to really look at what it is to be truly useful cross-culturally versus colonizing, thought colonizing uh, Western ideas in a culture that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. So those are all the aspects of it, um, which is it, I feel like your work, the work I get to do, the work of anybody who gets into this landscape of helping people understand both experientially and a little bit of the science behind how we construct our identity, how we construct a sense of well-being, what things impact that, what things can we do on our own to mitigate it. Once you begin to have a baseline learning, like let's say it's your 200 hour yoga training, or you go to a conference, most people feel as though like, what in the world? Why was I not taught this very young? Because it feels just like this hugely missing piece is that somatic interiority piece. Um, yeah, yeah, I'll quit. I'll quit yammering on for a second. No, no, that was a beautiful description. And, you know, you really sort of touched many of its facets, which is super cool. Um, yeah, I totally resonate with that. You know, I, I was even just thinking to myself like, oh, I, I did so much movement as a child, but it was all goal oriented and very regimented, you know, as an elite level gymnast at nine years old, you can imagine quite abusive actually, (laughs) you know, so it's like to have even just access to reflect on our movement as we're sort of coming of age where it's not goal oriented and you're not inside a hierarchical structure. I'm not quite sure there's a better doorway in to sort of say, how do I feel about this? And why do I feel about this? And oh my gosh, I have feelings about this. (laughs) Yeah. And then really that really tricky work of um, 
Like I know, even though this is the landscape I live in, when someone asks me or I hear the question, where do you feel that in your body? Mm-hmm. I feel like it's it's almost like that's almost like a PhD level question. You have totally. to build, you have to sort of build the capacity to understand, you know, for me, sensation is different from feeling, which is more akin to an emotion. Um, you know, that's the, we don't even have a really good, we've not yet developed um, good protocol on helping us create time, space to begin to understand how to receive and interpret signals from the body. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a brilliant link, the difference between sensation, feeling, emotion, and then thought form, you know, and really yeah. developing that uh, sensing, you know, even at a young age, even if it's just like, what do you mean my body? I'm pissed. <laughs> exactly. You know? Ex- yeah, exactly. And then trying to find exactly in that just sort of slow and then try to get a little micro before you get back out to the micro macro. And then that beautiful way of um, really co-creating the language with individuals. So brilliant comment for sure. You know, that it isn't really formulaic. It's that you have the ability to co-create a situation with someone so that you know this sort of true body curriculum has that mutation ability on purpose because every single human's ability to dig into their self-identity is going to be radically different and so therefore then it's like this mutating ability to co co-regulate slash co-create the reality of what's occurring not like gotta do this practice and then we're done at this time Yeah, exactly. And the way someone languages the sensation in their own body is going to always be more powerful um, than something I would deliver as a Mm. way for someone to feel. It was also like with, you know, being a Pilates educator for a long time, and maybe it was the same for you with yoga at a certain point, you know, that there are sort of foundational ideas and things you want to get across. But at some point, someone would say like, am I doing it right? And I'd say like, well, I don't know. You have to tell me because it's a set of feelings. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, if you, <laughs> if you understand that, like, can, do you feel this? Do you feel this? Do you feel this? Then, then, then that is right. If you feel nothing, then I think we have some more work to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. No, I mean, one of my first most influential yoga teachers is coming to mind, you know, Rodney, once I stepped into his class, I was like, oh, now I'm feeling something. Now I'm not just directing my body. Right. Because there was such an ability for like his language to allow me to like think, dream, imagine, sense, understand, connect, you know, all of those things that actually happened in my own body. And then, you know, then I go to put that into language, right? It sounds totally different than him. Yeah. And it's that what I always love, you know, doing, I, I really do love 
teacher training um, and helping people put all those pieces together and find their own voice. But that difference between, you know, you can hear it in a room where, where really with any kind of education, if someone is speaking from their internal knowing, particularly when it has to do with this a sequencing of, you know, muscular contractions or releases from the script. Yeah. Totally. You know, that, the, that, that, and, and that really gets to that idea of, you know, embodiment. Um, yeah. I just love it. And I love, um, I guess I get to be a profession, professional listener and observer and, um, celebrator of helping individuals, whether that's in a business sense or a movement sense or any kind of sense, like that, that thing of being able to go like, Oh, there it is. There it is. There it is. There you are. There you are. Mm-hmm. Like your whole you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely felt all the way through the way that you're structuring your team to the curriculum that you put out to the space that's held and just the different variations, which I think is important too. And I've watched it evolve over time, you know, from afar and up close is that there's a lot more access when you're not attached to your methodology. You understand basically what you just said, how to bring the you of someone you're staring at to the surface and allow them to have that experience. And then you're not really attached to what it looks like or, oh, we got to call it something else. Oh, it's not working over here. So we got to put it over there and it's going to look a little different, but that's it. Yeah. And I think that I know that we both, you and I both really love, we love frameworks mm-hmm. and we like, like, I feel like, Virgo? A, no, I'm an Aquarian. Aquarian. Okay. 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 Yeah, that's I, probably why you're good at managing teams. And I'm like, <gasps> no way, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm also an Enneagram seven. So okay, me too. So me I too. have a, yeah. a big, like, you know, community view. Um, but we try to create frameworks that I feel like if you have a really good framework, that it can allow for a lot of um, clarity. I think you need a framework. You need um, agreements like, yes, we sort of understand the basic tenets of what we need to do to create a, a thriving culture. We, you know, agree that we need to shift some of our time sensitivity. We agree we need to, whatever the agreements are. Mm-hmm. And then the, the capacities, like let's say we're working in a school that we know that, you know, the teachers who are there are there because they had a calling. Um, They are just overwhelmed and we're trying to create, I'm not there to tell people how to do their job, but try to create a framework and some agreements so that everyone can bring their best self into the environment and perhaps have some common languaging that we all feel good about. Because as you know, from your work and your book, and I'm assuming another book, that language is limited and critical. Yeah, totally. And Um, just foundational. Yeah. And foundational. And once you start to be able to 
um, you know, hold some key concepts in a way that's experiential. Like right now, I feel like beautifully, um, especially after 2020, um, embodiment, somatics, um, trauma-informed, trauma-sensitive, culturally sensitive, diversity, equity, inclusion, all these things are words that people are trying to understand. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful thing. But oftentimes, if we don't have time for those agreements and experiences, then we might all be saying words and mean something entirely different. Yeah. And I think the embodiment. Yeah. Yeah. The embodiment piece with all of those moments, like just to the the beginning of the podcast, you know, it's like if you're othering all of the time, then that's expressed in your embodiment. So if you go into and you you need to be trauma sensitive and then you go into the space with that type of like pushing, othering, agenda based kind of situation or 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 <laughs> like a lot yeah. of more stress gets kicked up and difficulty for everybody involved. Yeah, we're really excited. Um, So we have mindful music moments and mindful poetry moments, which is essentially mindfulness and poetry. um, Oh, I just love that. Yeah. Oh, it's been so beautiful. (laughs) So those are the programs that serve like pretty, pretty potent um, content widely. Like we have our biggest reach there. Mm-hmm. Then we have the True Body Project, which is a, a deeper, um, you know, more like circle work or just that more intentional work, usually with smaller numbers. And we're now doing um, these, we have these embedded relationships. Um, we have a school we work with in Cleveland and a couple we're working with here in Cincinnati where we take this um embodiment view, this true body view and embed it within the school day. Like, so at our school in Cleveland, we have not one, but three essentially mindfulness expressive arts educator who, so kids rather than going to, or in addition to going to art class, they have a special, which is on learning all of these things all year long. So it's really amazing. And what we learn really quickly is that, you know, the, both the beauty of how much you can do over time, creating relationships, caring, loving relationships um, with young people, and also that the cultural container. So everyone working in these schools these days are truly burnt out. I mean, the pressure from parents, from administration from testing. So we really truly cannot go in. Um, We can observe that there's this teacher, that teacher might be really burnt out and really, you know, you can see really struggling to keep keep their proverbial act together um, Mm -hmm. in the classroom. But to that, back to that point of othering, if we decide that they're somehow not good, bad, not part of our work, then we're really missing the boat. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why we consider these, we have a sort of section now of our work that we call deep work. And I would consider, Sue, that 
the way mindful music started, which was you agreeing to volunteer with me to, to work in a classroom with mm -hmm. kids for 10 weeks every day on mindfulness. It was being embedded in that school, hearing the morning announcements, because we happened to do class in the morning, having a relationship with that school, which allowed me to say, oh, what if that morning announcement period could be the bandwidth for an experience for everyone? Mm -hmm. And that was really the birth of mindful music moments. So we're trying to continue to do broad good work as well as deeper work, meaning we embed coaches, listeners, supporters within these systems to not just deliver to youth, but also provide respite, coaching, um, deep support for the exhausted humans, whether parents or teachers, who are trying to do their best job in, in very um, toxic environments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that speaks volumes to sort of the trauma sensitivities, is literally looking at every piece and how do we create collective change that is really needed in this environment. And if this piece isn't with the curriculum or available to large age ranges, to the parents, to the teachers, then we're kind of just not making a lasting imprint. So I think it's really cool to see it expand in that way where it's touching every part of the system. Yeah. And also, I mean, I learned so much by working in schools and, you know, particularly the school we worked in together, which just happened to have like 50% of the kids are refugee or immigrant students. Mm -hmm. And that was that, a cool yeah. experience too, because it's like, uh oh, they don't, they don't like, I got to speak differently. I got to hold my body differently. I've got to be available differently. I have to suggest things differently. I have to create space differently. Like Absolutely. So many different backgrounds in the room. Yeah. And then if you extrapolate that out to what I learned about parent engagement and, you know, not all of those students, but some of the students, the parents who we were trying to, you know, you know, you want parental engagement, but these are parents who they didn't grow up in the United States. They don't understand really even what a school is you know, like a traditional academic school in the U.S., they may feel very nervous that they're going to be in trouble for something. They don't speak the language. So, and that's another area, you know, of othering. It's like parents don't or blah, blah, blah. I think every human, on, like for sure, we now know that every human is stressed mm -hmm. beyond the pale. Um, you know, the stakes are really high. And a lot of our work is to, our collective work is to, whether it's just with a glance, a smile, or a kind word or two, is telling individuals, communicating that sort of like, oh my gosh, we get it. This is really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. And just that leading with love and empathy so that then you know, the minute any of us feel judged, um, you know, we're transmitting directly. If I decide that you're an other or worthy of my judgment, 
There is no alchemy between the two of us, except a toxic pattern. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, that was beautifully described, you know, sort of seeing the linkage between those things. I do want to touch on maybe one or two last things. Yeah. Um, which is this I love that they can go to art class and then they walk into True Body Project. Like as a um, sixth grader, you know, I just made this connection five like seconds ago. My art teacher, who I loved, you know, Mrs. Manning, I just remember everything about her. We made these Kachina dolls that I was obsessed with, and then I made it into a costume, all of these things. <laughs> and that's in sixth grade. And now I live nine miles from Kachina Peak, and I'm like into painting, you know? So to have th this imprint so young, I just, I think that the impact is huge. It's larger which is also kind of an ego check too, because these kids will grow up and they'll have lives all over the world and do radically different things. But some of the seeds planted in their younger years of downregulation, connection to body, connection to creativity will last a lifetime. Yeah. And also the, we're really working hard on creating in schools, the language is social emotional learning, and they have these or positive behavioral intervention strategies and they're really great ideas, but they end up being in a busy ecosystem. They end up being like mm, delivered, mm -hmm. like be a respectful, responsible problem solver. They're not um, yeah, as a third grader. You're checking out already. <laughs> yeah, because you're just it's word based. And so as we know, and, and you know, when you're dysregulated, word based verbal commands are not even going to register. So mm. But how do you create just a simple system of being able to, this is also important when you're in um, culturally diverse circumstances, is making sure that things are very explicit so that students, parents, everybody knows that what the social emotional learning goals are and are able to articulate why it matters, what's a time they did it well, what could they come up with to be helpful. And then we're working on creating a super easy system of being able to reward progress and to be able to notice, like, for example, you might have students who are, are just remarkable when there's a small group, like really, um, they have so much empathy and control and creativity, but the minute it's a larger group, they completely shift. So how do you have enough time and space and enough staff, say, within a school environment to be able to get a little more forensic about that, mm -hmm. to be able to say like, hey, I've noticed you're amazing in this kind of environment. What could we do? What do you need? How could I support making that a little easier when there's a bigger group of kids together? Mm. And really we're rewarding and um in you know simple ways that those behaviors which once we start that's the other thing i know about you know young people and working with such young people especially with girls in the early true body days is that i remember listening to a young woman who talked about that she just happened to develop quickly so she had large breasts so then you know boys others started commenting and sexualizing her and she said that it was just easier to become that 
Wow. Yeah. And that was so important in my understanding that these identities that we sort of start to take on or are given to us um, can really create years and years and years of living in kind of a false identity. Mm-hmm. So just helping, helping, helping students, um, being an observer of the, mo- like, and I think that having a great teacher like your art teacher is usually, in Parker Palmer is a wonderful writer. He wrote this great book called The Courage to Teach. And what he talks about is that it's it has usually like 5% to do with the content being taught and 90 some plus percent to do with the integrity of the teacher and the integrity of the teacher, a good teacher is someone who sees us, mm-hmm. who sees us and believes in us. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the ones we remember. Yeah. Yes. That's so important. And, you know, to be a part of creating academic and school environments where there's more access for the embodiment of children and teenagers to actually co-regulate in that space is just uh, no word. <laughs> it's coming, you know? <laughs> like, it's just huge, you know? I mean, it's just huge. Yeah, and I also think that, you know, you've done, a like, we, I think we both really love the the frameworks, whether they're Eastern, Western, yeah, science. Yeah, we, there is one you know, thing like, I want to add to what you were saying previously, yeah, yeah, which go I ahead. Think sometimes in the trauma-informed landscape, it's like, well, how do I be accepting? How do I be soft? How do I be available? But I think the way that you said it was there needs to be a directness of language, and that really creates the container of safety. It's not authority, but it's literally, you use the word agreements, you know, it's something that feels um, um, like a decision that is met with everyone in the room, right, is really the foundational piece. And I think that's really important that it's, you know, we've used the word co-regulate a lot, but that their voice is as important as your voice. So it's not really tenants that you're teaching, you know, it's literally formed statements that everybody's involved in. And that's, yeah, has to be direct. Yeah, we really start, the whole curriculum starts with, uh, the, you know, uh, a conversation about safety. And just because I say, like, what you hear on a lot is like, this is a safe space. Just because I've said it in no way means it's true, unless I understand yeah. what it means for everyone in that room to feel safe. Mm-hmm. So there's or physical, at least mental, when they feel unsafe. Yeah, moral, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. or what are the workarounds, like I need to um, doodle while I'm listening, or totally. I need to take movement breaks. And then you, you understand how to create. Um, and also as an educator, like I, if someone says, I, I really need to be doodling all the time and I'll say, and I love eye contact. So on occasion, I might ask you a question just so I can hear that you're taking the content in and that will soothe me. Um, just so you know, so you're sort of giving a heads up to, I'm not disrespecting you, but I also have some needs. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important at any age. And, you know, obviously I think there's, there's more playfulness there at a younger age. And then 
you know, having taught thousands of bodies as well over time, sometimes that is not a fun conversation to have as an adult, but one of you has to sort of maintain that um, availability in your emotional body to go, yeah, the way I said that was a bit off. Thank you for bringing it to my attention. That was kind of, that was off. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to do that um, recalibration without tumbling into shame and all those yeah. other things. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the lifelong learning, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the baseline of safety is that's it, right? We're not going into shame and guilt and punishment and dissatisfaction and who are you to say? And like, I'm like, my teeth are chattering just thinking in that <laughs> space. <laughs> I know. I don't want to be in there either. I'm definitely conflict avoidant, so I I've I've made it my life's work to create structures that eliminate as much as possible. Oh yeah, and that's probably really wise. You sort of just folded that in there, but for the facilitator to know what their tendencies are in that way and sort of always be double checking themselves. Absolutely. Well, my goodness, we could go on for days, couldn't we? I know, I know. I'm like uh, looking at the time, but I have about five other questions in the ethers. So I guess what we'll do is a, a final question, really, which is about your personal creative practice. I know you're a playwright and you've written novels and children's books. And I, I didn't know you wrote like the Wiggle Wiggle because I was just thinking like, oh, that's so cute. Like if I could go to a Wiggle class in an art class, like I'm in. <laughs> Not even a dance class, you know. So, just a little bit about you know your writing and the creative, the way that you stay connected to that creative thread to wrap up. Mm, Yeah. So, for quite a while, I was really um, sort of self torturing myself. uh, Self torturing myself—that's redundant. Um, As I was building this this social practice, this taking things I know and trying to create a container that affects many and that will live beyond me. I just didn't have or didn't dedicate as much time to my personal writing practice. So I decide that um, there's a lovely term social practice, which is, um, you know, artists who basically use their art for making social change. So that is how I operate and soothe my artistic soul on the days and weeks where I just don't have a lot of time to write my personal work. Mm-hmm. But my personal work, I'm currently in the middle of a novel, mm-hmm. um, writing a novel, and it's um, it's just like having it's like having a relationship. It's very intimate. It requires um, just this depth of getting to know characters. There's so much time you have to do it just really on your own, even though I have some lovely people who I talk to and we share work. It really is, um, it's that lo- It's that slow time in building, world building without even if you have someone look in at every chapter, it doesn't really matter. You have to do the long, deep work. Mm-hmm. And that is just, it's just miraculous to me. Um, and it really makes me feel my whole 
I feel the most grounded when I am able to at least a couple times a week work on and sustain and move forward this personal narrative. Mm, that's awesome. Yeah, that's so needed. And I'm so happy to hear that you're giving more time to that. You know, I think that there's, it's easy, especially since I know language comes to you quickly and you you have such a like mastery over certain parts of it to always be putting it out into the world to because language is a great organizing principle to do that for other people and communities and other organizations and your own organizations. And then there's something so intimate and kind of gut-wrenching at times, but kind of exciting all wrapped in one when you're just using it for something you can't see yet or you don't know where it's going. Yeah. Or if it's really going to go anywhere, because I've written (laughs) many things that don't go anywhere and you know that it's a it's, you know, getting it done is one thing. Finding a place for these things to live in the world is a, a whole nother set of yeah, challenges. Yeah, project. <laughs> yeah, but I just yeah. think it's that, you know, having time to, you know, like just lifelong learning, whether it's reading or developing your own world and how you make meaning. That's also the thing too, is that in, in fiction, I get to make meaning, but it's not so explicit. Hmm. Um, And there's something really nice about that. And I'm really excited to know what you're working on next. (laughs) Um, Well, I have a long-term plan for Rizo, which I'm excited about. Maybe it'll get there. We'll, We'll know in like a couple months if it can get there. And then um, I did start writing a second book, which I'm pretty excited about, but it's a very different tone than transitory nature. So really just for the last like six months, I've been working on a tone shift and like, ooh, no, that was off, you know, or like, no, that that doesn't have enough umph behind it, if that makes sense. Or no, that's cliche. You know, there isn't a deep practice there. So some of the things I've done personally is like I got bees, which I'm ecstatic about. We have a hive in the backyard now. Um, We built a greenhouse this year, you know, so we'll by next spring almost be completely eating out of the greenhouse. It's a four season greenhouse. Um, Getting in water more, like my second book is much more in contact with earthly systems. Mm. And when I can tell that my language repertoire isn't embodied, I I can feel it on the page, you know, so that's what I mean by tone shift, because my last one was so analytical, which is what I did for 10 years was basically dissect human consciousness and the way that it forms identity, you know, and this one I want to be like much slower and from a different tone and a different perspective. So it needs to be within me. Yeah, and I think you did such a, a, a beautiful job with your book. And your your work really is that you are um, you're honoring systems that exist and in the language we have to uh, record those systems. But you're also really bold about when you need to create use the language in slightly different ways, whether through capitalization and punctuation or whatever it is, mm. to to make the new language. 
Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that feedback. <laughs> Cause that was a little tricky in TN like, okay, how is this going to fit? And you know, if it's going to be non-binary, then it needs to not reflect a binary in its structure. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah that's why I'm sure we love the poets. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so you're right. We could make this a seven-hour podcast. <laughs> I know. We would think it's really fun. I'm not sure about everybody else. <laughs> All right. So, Stacy, I'm so happy that we were able to connect in such an organic way. I didn't even look at one of the questions I had written down, which I just love. It just flowed. Um, you know, a big supporter and deeply respectful of your work, your practice, the way that you're organizing these nonprofits from the internal mechanisms to the way that you put the curriculum out in the world, you know, and I think there's something expansive about knowing it's making an impact and just how big that impact could be. Like we may never know in this lifetime. And it's amazing to be committed to work like that, where you're just like, yeah, I know it's doing great things and it could go on for generations. Hmm. Isn't that something? Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I adore you. I want to see you when I come back to Santa Fe to see yeah, my son. Yeah, let's make that so, happen. All right. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, of course. Thanks for coming on the Rise Up Cast. We'll we need to talk sooner than later for sure. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Rise Cast. If you love this episode, please download, subscribe, share it, and pass it along to a friend. Please subscribe to our Rizo Magazine subscription at www.rizomagazine.com. You can find Sue Hunt's work, your host, at www.suehunt.com. We love bringing you these in-depth conversations. Please remember the suggestions of our guests and hosts are for informational purposes only and should not be taken as actionable advice. This podcast is a resource for general information, education, and artistic inspiration. Rizo is not liable for your decisions to implement information from this podcast.